Hey, this is Brett, and we are excited to let you know that today's show is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Channel, one of our favorite places to get your nature fix, where you can explore the real Rockies. From award-winning documentaries to music in the mountains, this is Adventure with a Conscience. We think you're going to love it. You can check it out and subscribe at RockyMountainChannel.com. Brett, here to inspire you to get outside today and connect with nature for mindfulness, for your health, and for personal growth, naturally. Well, it's another Walden Wednesday here at Mountain Zen Den, and that means we're going to take some time to read from authors and poets and naturalists like Walt Whitman and Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. And another one of my favorites that is often overlooked. In fact, I think he's one of the best kept secrets when it comes to nature writers. And it's Enos Mills, also considered the father of Rocky Mountain National Park. He was inspired by John Muir to make uh, to fight for legislation for the uh, area now known as Rocky Mountain National Park. So we're really grateful for him and his passion and love for nature. And today, we're going to be reading from the first chapter from his book, Wildlife on the Rockies, called Colorado Snow Observer. And I invite you to listen closely to his unique wit and dry sense of humor, because it's easy to miss if you're not paying close attention. Through his beautiful book, Wildlife on the Rockies, Enos Mills helped me fall even more in love with this area. I hope you do too. Colorado Snow Observer Where are you going? was the question asked me one snowy winter day. After hearing that I was off on a camping trip, to be gone several days, and that the place where I intended to camp was in deep snow on the upper slopes of the Rockies, the questioners laughed heartily. Knowing me, some questioners realized that I was in earnest, and all that they could say in the nature of argument or appeal was said to cause me to forego the folly. But I went and in the romance of a new world, on the Rockies in winter. I lived intensely through ten strong days and nights, and gave to my life new and rare experiences. Afterwards, I made other winter excursions, all of which were stirring and satisfactory. The recollection of these winter experiences is as complete and exhilarating as any in the vista of my memory. Some years after my first winter camping trip, I found myself holding a strange position, that of the State Snow Observer of Colorado. I have never heard of another position like it. Professor L. G. Carpenter, the celebrated irrigation engineer, was making some original investigations concerning forests and the water supply. He persuaded me to take the position, and under his direction, I worked as a government experiment officer. For three successive winters, I traversed the upper slopes of the Rockies and explored the crest of the continent, alone. While on this work, I was instructed to make notes on those things that are likely to be of interest or value to the Department of Agriculture or the Weather Bureau, and 
to be careful not to lose my life. On these winter trips, I carried with me a camera, thermometer, barometer, compass, notebook, and folding axe. The food carried usually was only raisins. I left all bedding behind. Notwithstanding, I was alone and in the wilds. I did not carry any kind of gun. The work made it necessary for me to ramble the wintry heights in sunshine and storm. Often I was out, or rather, up, in a blizzard. And on more than one occasion, I was out for two weeks on the snow-drifted crest of the continent without seeing anyone. I went beyond the trails and visited the silent places alone. I invaded gulches, eagerly walked in the splendid forest aisles, wandered in the dazzling glare on dreary alpine moorlands, and scaled the peaks over mantles of ice and snow. I had many experiences, amusing, dangerous, and exciting. There was abundance of life and fun in the work. On many an evening, darkness captured me and compelled me to spend the night in the wilds without bedding, and often without food. During these nights, I kept a campfire blazing until daylight released me. When the night was mild, I managed to sleep, a little, in installments, rising from time to time to give wood to the eager fire. Sometimes, a scarcity of wood kept me busy gathering it all night, and sometimes the night was so cold that I did not risk going to sleep. During these nights, I watched my flaming fountain of fire brighten, fade, surge, and change, or shower its spray of sparks upon the surrounding snowflowers. Strange reveries I have had by these winter campfires. On a few occasions, mountain lions interrupted my thoughts with their piercing, lonely cries, and more than once, a reverie was pleasantly changed by the whisper of a chickadee in some nearby tree as a cold comrade snuggled up to it. Even during the worst of nights, when I thought of my lot at all, I considered it better than that of those who were sick in houses or asleep in the stuffy, deadly air of the slums. Believe me, tis something to be cast face to face with thine own self at last. Not all nights were spent outdoors. Many a royal evening was passed in the cabin of a miner or a prospector, or by the fireside of a family who for some reason had left the old home behind and sought seclusion in wild scenes, miles from neighbors. Among Colorado's mountains, there are an unusual number of strong characters who are trying again. They are strong because broken plans, lost fortunes, or shattered health elsewhere have not ended their efforts or changed their ideals. Many are trying to restore health. Some are trying again to prosper. Others are just making a start in life. But there are a few who, far from the maddening crowd, are living happily the simple life. Sincerity, hope, and repose enrich the lives of those who live among the crags and pines of mountain fastness. Many a happy evening I have had with a family, or an old prospector, who gave me interesting scraps of autobiography, along with a lodging for the night. The snowfall on the mountains of Colorado is very unevenly distributed, and is scattered through seven months of the year. 
two places only a few miles apart and separated by a mountain range may have very different climates, and one of these may have twice as much snowfall as the other. On the middle of the upper slopes of the mountains, the snow sometimes falls during seven months of the year. At an altitude of 11,000 feet, the annual fall amounts to 18 feet. This is several times the amount that falls at an altitude of 6,000 feet. In a locality near Crested Butte, the annual fall is 30 feet, and during snowy winters, even 50 feet. Most winter days are clear, and the climate less severe than is usually imagined. One winter, I walked on snowshoes on the upper slopes of the snowy range of the Rockies, from the Wyoming line on the north to near the New Mexico line on the south. This was a long walk, and it was full of amusement and adventure. I walked most of the way on the crest of the continent. The broken nature of the surface gave me ups and downs. Sometimes I would descend to the level of 7,000 feet, and occasionally I climbed some peak that was 14,000 feet above the tides. I had not been out many days on this trip when I was caught in a storm on the heights above treeline. I at once started downward for the woods. The way among the crags and precipices was slippery. The wind threatened every moment to hurl me over a cliff. The wind-blown snow filled the air so that I could see only a few feet, and at times, not at all. But it was too cold to stop. For two hours, I fought my way downward through the storm, and so dark it was that during the last half hour that I literally felt my way with my staff. Once in the woods, I took off a snowshoe, dug a large hole in the snow down to the earth, built a fire, and soon forgot the perilous descent. After eating from my supply of raisins, I dozed a little and woke to find all calm and the moon shining in glory on a snowy mountain world of peaks and pines. I put on my snowshoes, climbed upward beneath the moon, and from the summit of Lead Mountain, 13,000 feet high, saw the sunrise in splendor on a world of white. The tracks and records in the snow which I read in passing made something of a daily newspaper for me. They told much of news of the wilds. Sometimes I read of the games that the snowshoe rabbit had played, of a starving time among the brave mountain sheep on the heights, of the quiet content in the ptarmigan neighborhood, of the dinner that the pines had given the grouse, of the amusements and exercises of the deer's stamping ground, of the cunning of foxes, of the visits of magpies, the excursions of lynxes, and the red records of mountain lions. The mountain lion is something of a game hog and an epicure. He prefers warm blood for every meal and is very wasteful. I have much evidence against him. His worst one-day record that I have shows five tragedies. In this time, he killed a mountain sheep, a fawn, a grouse, a rabbit, and a porcupine. And as if this were not enough, he was about to kill another sheep when a dark object on snowshoes shot down the slope nearby and disturbed him. The instances where he has attacked human beings are rare, but he will watch and follow one for hours with the utmost caution and curiosity. One morning, after a night journey through the wood, I turned back and doubled my trail. After going a short distance, I came back to the track of a lion alongside my own. 
I went back several miles and read the lion's movements. He had watched me closely. At every place where I rested, he had crept up close, and at the place where I had sat down against a stump, he had crept up to the opposite side of the stump, and, I fear, while I dozed. One night during this expedition, I had lodging in an old, isolated prospector's cabin with two young men who had very long hair. For months they had been in seclusion, gathering wonderful herbs, hunting out prescriptions for every human ill, and waiting for their hair to grow long. I hoped they prepared some helpful, or at least harmless prescriptions, for, ere this, they have become picturesque and, I fear, prosperous medicine men on some populous street corner. One day I had dinner on the summit of Mount Lincoln, 14,000 feet above the ocean. I ate with some miners who were digging out their fortune, and was the only caller in five months. But I was not always a welcome guest. At one of the big mining camps I stopped for mail, and to rest for a day or so. I was all rags and tags, and had several broken strata of geology and charcoal on my face in addition. Before I had got well into the town, from all quarters came dogs, each of which seemed determined to make it necessary for me to buy some clothes. As I had already determined to do this, I kept the dogs at bay for a time, and then sought refuge in a first-class hotel. From this, the porter, stimulated by an excited order from the clerk, promptly and literally kicked me out. In the robings of winter, how different the mountains than when dressed in the bloom of summer. In no place did the change seem more marked than on some terrace over which summer flung the lacy drapery of white cascade, or where a wild waterfall leapt in glory. These places in winter were glorified with the fine arts of ice, frozen music, as someone has defined architecture, for here winter had constructed from water a wondrous array of columns, panels, filigree, fretwork, relief work, arches, giant icicles, and stalagmites as large as, and in many ways resembling a big tree with a fluted full-length mantle of ice. Along the way were extensive areas covered with the ruins of fire-killed trees. Most of the forest fires which had caused these were the result of carelessness. The timber destroyed by these fires had been needed by thousands of home builders. The robes of beauty which they had burned from the mountainsides are a serious loss. These fire ruins preyed upon me, and I resolved to do something to save the remaining forests. The opportunity came shortly after the resolution was made. Two days before reaching the objective point, farthest south, my food gave out, and I fasted. But as soon as I reached the end, I started to descend the heights and very naturally knocked at the door of the first house I came to and asked for something to eat. I supposed I was at a pioneer's cabin. A handsome, neatly dressed young lady came to the door, and when her eyes fell upon me, she blushed, and then turned pale. I was sorry that my appearance had alarmed her, but I repeated my request for something to eat. Just then, through the half-open door behind the young lady, came the laughter of children, and a glance into the room told me that I was before a mountain schoolhouse. By this time, the teacher, to whom I was talking, startled me by inviting me in. As I sat eating a luncheon to which the teacher and each one of the six schoolchildren contributed, the teacher explained to me that she was recently from the East 
and that I so well fitted her ideas of a western desperado that she was frightened at first. When I finished eating, I made my first after-dinner speech. It was also my first attempt to make a forestry address. One point I tried to bring out was concerning the destruction wrought by forest fires. Among other things, I said, during the past few years in Colorado, forest fires which ought never to have started have destroyed many million dollars worth of timber. And the area over which the fires have burned aggregates 25,000 square miles. This area of forest would put on the equator an evergreen forest belt one mile wide that would reach entirely around the world. Along with this forest have perished many of the animals and thousands of beautiful birds who had homes in it. I finally bade all goodbye, went on my way rejoicing, and in due course arrived at Denver, where a record of one of my longest winter excursions was written. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. There's something about being on a snowy mountain in the solitude, without having to dress up warmly for it, that kind of fills the soul, doesn't it? Well, I hope today inspired you to get out and, and do get some nature of your own. And remember that life is a gift, nature's a gift, and you are a gift back to the world. We'll see you back here next time, my friend. <laughs>